Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Trayton Heckman and James Stark, titled Changing the World Through Small Daily Acts, Small Gardens, and Small Groups. Welcome, everybody. It is uh, so such a great honor to be back in person with everyone at Commonweal. This is our first in-person uh, new school conversation since probably, uh, I would say, February 2020. So we are here outside. We are creating uh, spaces at Commonweal to do new school conversations and have other Commonweal co- uh, events. And we're just so we're so pleased to be able to be here with all of you guys. It's a beautiful day in Bolinas, California. We can hear the ocean, and the sun is shining, and it's a, a fall, crisp fall day from the coast of Marin County. So we are also webcasting, and we have a group of people joining us on our webinars the way we have been doing for the last 18 months. And so we welcome all of you guys. I'm Kira Epstein. I'm the New School Coordinator. And we are so pleased and proud to present a conversation today with Trayson Heckman and James Stark. Uh, I'm going to turn it over in a minute to James. So there's a few events that are coming up that I want to tell you about. October 29th and November 5th, we will be having a wonderful conversation with host Melissa K. Nelson, co-presented by the Center for Humans and Nature, called What Kind of Ancestor Do You Want to Be? And this is going to be a two-part conversation where we bring in um, two indigenous women leaders from around the world for each conversation. It'll be a virtual conversation only. The speakers are going to be joining us from New Zealand and all over the place. So that one we're going to be doing virtually. Our second in-person slash hybrid event coming up uh, November 12th, which will be our um, TNS fundraiser. We rarely, rarely do fundraisers, but this is going to be a fundraising event. We hope that you might want to join us either virtually or in person. That one will be a conversation with uh, Michael Lerner and Francis Weller, and the name of that one is going to be The Long Dark tending to the soul in unknown territory. In December, we have uh, another event with uh, Morgan Curtis, Niria, Alicia Garcia, and our host, Victoria Santos. Uh, They're going to be talking about transforming ancestral legacies towards a more just world. Okay, ready to begin? Trayton Heckman and James Stark, welcome to the New School at Commonweal. So we're so pleased that, that James is joining us today as a guest host. Uh, I've known James for a long time, since I, probably since I took the permaculture, the first permaculture class, I took a year-long permaculture class, and then I took an ecology of leadership class, and so on and so forth. Um, we're, we're lucky to have James in our community. Uh, I hope you're not offended by me calling you a precious elder I can work with it. Oh, okay, okay, good. <laughs> I'm only 76, so. <laughs> okay. I, I'm getting... A practicing elder. Okay. James has focused his work at the intersection of ecology, community resilience, and healing over many decades. 
with a master's in environmental sciences, focusing on sustainable community development and an MA in spiritual psychology. His work has centered on developing institutions and programs that strengthen the resilience of communities and serving as a guide for individuals seeking to lead in times of change. He co-founded and co-directs Commonweal's Regenerative Design Institute on Whidbey Island, Washington. And he currently serves as senior advisor with Natura Institute for Ecology and Medicine at our Commonweal Garden. And he's staff on Commonweal's Resilience Project. And both of those are in Bolinas here where we are. His community work has yielded the co-creation of community-based nonprofits that have created replicable models for developing community resilience. He currently co-facilitates the Art of Vitality and Resilience Wayfinding programs at Natura. Thank you both for being here. Thank you, Kira. And uh, what a pleasure it is to be uh, part of the New School series of uh, conversations with people who are making a difference. And Trayson, what a pleasure it is to get to sit with you. Uh, we've never had this opportunity. And uh, we just went electric a few minutes ago on all the ways that we've woven together and the things we've done together over 20 years. And we're just, um, I was just noticing that you were, when we met, you are now the age that I was when I met you. <laughs> and and it's, it's, it really brings up um, um, just the curiosity about how we create these uh, intergenerational changemaker ecologies. And, but one thing, just to introduce you, I know you will be the best to introduce yourself to everyone over the next hour. I could never present what you're going to be presenting about yourself. But I would just say that how you touch me is that every time that I've been with you, I've always seen you as an, a bright light and an inspiring leader in our community. And for an elder to look to the generation coming up behind you, it's people like you who allow me to sleep at night, <laughs> knowing we're in good hands. So, and I'm sure the audience will get to appreciate who you are as we talk more. So, welcome to New School, and what a, what a joy. Mm. Thank you, James. <laughs> so, uh, elements from your childhood, and what are the things that influenced you, that you draw on, that, that have you be such a dynamic person in your life right now? Mm. People like you. I hang out with good people like you as a main thing. But um, <clears throat> that's a good question. I think I've always been a bit of a, an adventurer. And even from being a kid on my BMX bike and out in the forest and things like that. And definitely always had a bit of a draw towards just inspiration and excitement. But I think for most of my life, I didn't recognize, you know, what was going on in the world, my privilege, what I grew up with, things like that. And then as I was waking up to the state of the world about you know, 25 or 27 years ago, which even then felt really challenging. Like, you know, keeps on getting more challenging in some ways. But I started to get exposed to these just different sort of people. Like, I saw this page on a wall. Has anybody ever heard of Sark? She's an author. 
um, amazing author and just writes with this kind of vitality and aliveness. And I was like, what in the hell is that? I didn't even know what it was. I didn't have a reference for it. It made me really excited at first. Then it made me really insecure, like, ooh, I'm not there. How do I get there? And started feeling that dissonance between, you know, glimpsing things that are possible and then maybe where you're at. Um, and then just, you know, kind of stumbling along for more breadcrumbs, but, but realizing then eventually coming across permacultures and people who are generating farms and forests and doing this amazing work. Um, I didn't have words for it at the time, but things like purpose and passion and presence were the qualities that people had that really inspired me. And I was thinking, these folks are aware of what's going on in the world. They're aware of how difficult things are with our people and our planet. And they're just tapped into something else. I was just thinking, like, what? what's in their Wheaties? What are they doing that's different? And how can I get some of it? Right. And so, it, you know, through time, I think it's that, that connection of passion and purpose and feeling a part of something larger has been the through line. And it's interesting because we, we all um, start at a certain point. We have our lives and they're going on. And then all of a sudden there's a wake up. I know for me was back in my teens when I read Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. I was like, oh, my God, this isn't about jumping on the train that's going on. Where the train's going in the wrong direction. And that starts to frame up your life. Um, I have some curiosity because we all find ourselves we could be in any kind of role out in community. Um, what were you doing in your 20s? Like I, I heard you mention something about your corporate life and then snowboarding and, 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 and uh, being having sponsored. Like, can you just say a little bit about that? <laughs> yes, <sir. laughs> It's like, kind of like the invisible for most of us knowing that. Yeah, I think in college I really just started waking up to a lot of the, the hurt and challenges in the planet and it didn't feel good. It felt scary and a little overwhelming and starting to try and do small things of quit using styrofoam and eat organic and things like that. Um, and then, but what I really want to do is snowboard. I love snowboarding. I love being in nature. That's all I wanted to do when I graduated from college. And I was like, okay, I'll get good grades. I'll get the degree. And then I'm going to go snowboard. And then suddenly on it, a, on a green board, of course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now they make green boards, which is good. Yeah. Um, you know, and so, but then getting pulled into the good job and the big company, the money, the pathway, all the pressures to kind of take the path that sort of society lays out. And so I did that for a couple of years. And then eventually I got exposed to Sark's writing and other people and just hit this tipping point of discomfort that caused me to want to break free and do what I love to do, which was snowboarding. And so I moved to Tahoe and slept on a friend's couch and would wake up in the morning and just stare at this beautiful open space just out the window, you know, outside of Truckee. And uh, just felt like my life was this free open slate. That was the first time since I was a kid. And then just snowboard, go ride every day with friends, and that led to travel and getting exposed to more of these different reference points and starting to slowly wake up to deeper layers of, of understanding about sustainability and organic food and, you know, being surprised when suddenly there's floating flowers and greens in my tea at this hut. And I was just like, it cracked open my paradigm. Cause like, oh, nature, I buy organic at the store and nature's that thing out there that I kind of love. But when nature shows up in your cup, it, it's amazing that our, our paradigms are so fractured in our culture that I, you don't even think of flowers and, and herbs as, as tea and something that's a part of us. So starting to just get exposed to being connected in a different way, you know? Yeah, that's so great. And 
I, I'm curious about when, when you had that first spark, that impulse, and the word daily acts. What was going on? What, what did that feel like? What, what were you doing when that hit? And you said, daily acts, I'm going to make this little publication. <laughs> like, yeah. like, I love when we, when we go way out where no person's gone before and, 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 and the excitement that comes out. So what, what was happening? What was that like? That's a good question. I think, you know, just this trying to relate with all these macro challenges and then resonating with the Kanda Gandhi and be the change and, and the word ripples from different quotes about how the ripple effect of our actions and daily acts and communities. So these words were kind of just centering in my head. And after the Sark exposure and getting exposed to permaculturists and these regenerative farmers, uh, getting exposed to bioneers, and just kind of getting cracked open to more of what's possible, like those things built up to um, the idea of just centering on the power we have and that we could, you know, maybe even though the world's problems are so massive and so overwhelming and our actions seem so small, that by reclaiming the power of our small actions through the power of small gardens, through the power of small groups, and we can change our lives and change our neighborhoods and change our communities and change our world even. Um, and so uh, Ripples became the journal and Daily Acts became the organization. All the words kind of fit in there eventually. Um, but and it, it just it started with that and it started with exposure of showing up at the Permaculture Institute in Northern California Garden after being exposed to these herbalists and these regenerative farmers and different cultures who are connected with the herbs, that taxi drivers that know how to peel a bark on a tree and, uh, you know, for healing. <clears throat> and then I walk through the gate at the Permaculture Institute in Northern California and just get rewired by all this crazy food, medicine, beauty, fecundity. I didn't even know what all this stuff was. You know, there's a pond and there's a, a cob office and there's a dragon head coming out of it that you put pizzas in. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> what is this stuff? You know, and so that kind of grounded it for me. Right. Like, ooh, I need to do that. Yeah, yeah. How did you move from what you just shared into the idea of creating gardens? In the garden, you know, stepping through the gate at, at Pink at the Permaculture Institute, to me gelled like seven years of being exposed to these purposeful people who are more present and transformed and living their passion and seeing, you know, small gatherings and bigger gatherings and then regenerative farms and regenerative forests and whole cultures connected to place and each other. But the garden was so practical and tangible. And just when I stepped through that gate, that idea that we can regenerate our connections to self and nature and community in a garden, in this place that a lot of people have gardens, whether it's a backyard, a front yard, on a balcony, you know, that you could kind of tap into nature's operating instructions in this really relatable way. And so it just kind of became the core of our work of this idea of you could change the world in a garden by learning permaculture and, you know, and then just from there. So there's a, a crazy number of gardens that you've made <laughs> with your organization. <laughs> Could you just say about, like, how that unfolded going from, oh, let's create a garden over at Ned's place or at Elizabeth's place to, like, how many gardens have you done? 
I, a lot of... <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, the gardens we've installed, we've installed 37 demonstration gardens in Sonoma County, and then through action campaigns, we've mobilized in the range of 100,000 actions and projects through us and other organizations and networks in, in different states. And then we've influenced some municipal policies that then um, incentivize creating these gardens. You know, like in the city of Katati, we helped them create a policy a bunch of years ago where they'll They'd pay you a dollar square foot to install a permaculture garden, <laughs> just kind of amazing. But it went from just, you know, the tours, the things that inspired me, which I think could apply for all of us, of like finding what lights us up. And I got exposed to the permaculture garden and, and these tours and these different things. And so the things that made me feel good, I'm like, God, maybe that'll work for other people. And so, of course, I started with a tour, you know, of showing people regenerative gardens and farms. And then you move to skill building workshops, like, okay, well, let's install a gray water system. Let's install rain catchment. Let's do practical things. And then that led to installing our first permaculture food force in the city of Petaluma in our neighborhood. And I was, we started working with our city. And at one point, I, I was with the water conservation coordinator. I said, Dave, we should plant a food forest over on that lawn. He's like, what's a food forest? So I started to explain how is this ecological system that grows food, medicine, beauty, habitat, wonder, you know, connects all these, these wonderful functions together. Because at that time, cities, to save water, they're ripping out turf. And so you take out 500 to 1,000 years of soil that it took to build, and then that goes to the landfill where it becomes 50-some times the amount of greenhouse gas emissions as methane gas. So there's this good idea of saving water, but then it's, it's going against how nature functions. And so we're like, well, let's sheet mulch and let's install fruit trees and let's do bioswales and let's, you know, do all this other good stuff. At the time, that was the water conservation department. We had like 150 people came out and the guy we were working with got it through his director who's a little dubious and he walks out and it's 80 degrees and there's all these elders and young people, intergenerational, just digging and sweaty and muddy. muddy. And he just looked a little kind of confused by it. And he's got his kids in his arms. He's like, why are they so happy? Why are they having fun and they're dirty and they're saving the city water and they're saving the city money and they're doing a bunch of cool things that that department didn't think about at that time. And they're not, and they're not working for the city, which yeah. is the model. Anything yeah. happens in the city has to be public works does that. And, and then training, all of a sudden the people are doing that. Exactly. And we're training ecological designers who used to install or do install landscapes professionally but not work with volunteers. And so they're starting to work with volunteers and you know, you're, you're saving stormwater, which several years later, when the new state requirements came in that required stormwater education and installation, but came with new fund, no new funding, cities were super happy, like, well, yeah, we've, we've been doing that for you for a while. We're saving water and harvesting water and catching water and growing food and growing medicine habitat, because you, when you think like a garden, you just do all the stuff that fits together, but our communities are, are, are siloed and disconnected, and different departments focus on different things. So that first one, then that led to a few months later, another city said, will you install one for us? I was like, okay. And then that led to mobilizing a really big one at City Hall on, on 350.org's first day of global climate action. So we had three organizations, 250 volunteers, semi-tractor, trailer, trucks full of mulch, like bigger than this whole area, just mountains of mulch. And we saved the city a million gallons of water a year, 60,000 installation costs, put in rain catchment, community garden beds at the entrance to the halls of power in a day, and then that quickly led to, like, well, what if we did a lot of these? And that's when it kind of got scary. We came up with this idea of planting 350 gardens in a weekend. And we were honestly afraid to even say it at first. Like, it was such a scary goal. But the power of community, we only had a couple staff. We were mostly volunteers at the time. 
But we got 30, 40 organizations, agencies, local businesses together, and the community rose to the challenge, and we planted and revitalized 628 gardens in a weekend. And then we doubled, 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 and then spread it to other communities. And then we shifted some policies along the way, working with our cities, um, and that adds up to a lot of gardens. Well, I think the audience is getting a flavor of what happens when a person gets on fire <laughs> and is really lit up with what they're doing. It, it's, it's toxic, you know, like you, you just, oh my God, I, I want to, what I've been doing, I want to do what he's doing, right? Yeah. And, and it just interrupts the patterns, you know, whether it's the public works person or whatever, and, and then it explodes from there. Um, there was a certain point where you talked about uh, encountering the, the policies within communities who you can do this, but you can't do that. You know, all these policies that were set up to do the thing that is eventually creating a problem for us. Then you start moving into, well, maybe we could start changing the policies. And what was that like, making that transition? Because I know you've done a lot of policy work now. And so you're, one minute you're in the hands in the soil, and the next minute you, you're in front of a, a group of politicians saying, here, we need to rewrite some things. What, what, what was that like? And how were you re received? Yeah, I, you know, it, it, I think you just start small. Like the, the thing we get so overwhelmed by all the big stuff. But you start small, and you find some good people, like you all, you all, right? And you're like, okay, wow, you have skills I don't have. You're a permaculture designer. You can design the food for us. And you're a city. You could spread it. And you're volunteers. You could dig it and all that. You know, so starting small, education, a gray water system, a garden, a bigger garden, a bigger garden, lots of gardens. And so having the partners, you know, it's like no one person can do the it. The collaboration. The collective, yeah. Can you say something about, like, what that has been like because when I think of you and I think of your work, it's all about how you enroll all these different people and organizations and pull them and weave them together like an ecology, you know, like how nature works, you know, back to permaculture principles. Um, what, was, what was that like? Like how, how did people receive you? Were you surprised? Probably some people would say no, and, and a lot said yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can you say anything about what that process was like for you? Yeah, I mean, I think probably most of us know when you're inspired or, you know, powerful emotions, whether they're negative or positive, have a very, um, a, a drawing effect. Like, they draw it out of us. So if someone has really powerful positive emotions, then you get a little cluster of people, and you get more partners, and you're bigging, builder and bigger, build, building bigger and bigger wins, and you're having more fun with more partners, it just creates this infectious energy. And so gardens went to bigger gardens, went to action campaigns with more partners, went into coalition building and working in food system coalitions and water coalitions. And then we start working with a lot of different players, you know, as the complexity increases. And then that slowly started leading to helping, you know, first with going from sheet mulching one lawn to helping our city create a program that had provided free resources to sheet mulch 500 lawns, which saved 20 million gallons of water a year, every year, plus supporting local businesses for compost and mulch. And so we started to be able to dip our toes in, in smaller policies. 
And then eventually the coalition work led to, once the 2017 fires happened, the Tubbs fire um, that ripped through our community. I live in Sonoma County, and we've just been hit by record fire, record fire, record flood, drought, all of us, pandemic, all of us. So we've been in kind of disaster response for a lot of years in a row. Um, And that really catalyzed us to bridge difference and and work in different ways uh, across environment, across equity, across different government agencies and things. And then eventually it it led to a recognition for a different sort of advocacy. Because I and we've always been so focused on solutions and just trying to model we would gently push and try and put public wind in the political sails, as a friend often says. <clears throat> but it became clear that we needed to advocate more strongly because we weren't addressing the climate crisis and we weren't addressing the disparity that disaster always creates and the inequities. Um, and so it drove us still to take a collaborative approach, still to like interview and work with people in all different parts of our system, elected officials, in agencies, in the community, to try and figure out what's the shared thing we need to do versus just pushing. Um, and so that advocacy then eventually led to bigger advocacy with the climate emergency. Um, right. And we formed a coalition called Climate Action Petaluma with some other partners that got our city to become the first city in Sonoma County to declare a climate emergency and then helped that ripple through other cities and the county to where then our, our whole county, I think it's the only one still, became the first county in the country to have all the municipalities declare climate emergency and start setting 20, 30, zero emission targets. And then from there, it's just like, well, and having a former staff member who'd been through our permaculture design course with Toby Hemingway and been through our leadership institute that was now on city council advocating for change, someone who understands organizing and the grassroots being on council, and then getting more people elected, helping get a city commission created, just like little by little, it's amazing to see the way, just like in the garden, that people get called into it, you know? Yeah, yeah. and I think, I think the strength that, that you bring is to find that sweet spot where the officials and the governments at all different levels who often are, um, have negative experiences with the people, yeah. The people are complaining about this. The people yeah. don't want that and all this kind of stuff. So they're, they're kind of like a little bit shell-shocked by all, like what's happened to them personally. And give the people, well, I don't, can't we just do it, you know, where you've been able to uh, find that spot where people can become this positive force that, that the people who are hired to do some of these things say, oh, they can be my colleagues, People, you know, they can, yeah, come work with us. I think that's what you, that's the amazing thing you've made happen. Making that shift, because we've been partnering with our government agencies for 15 years now, and it's true, and I appreciate, you know, harder pushes on activism. They have their time and place, and uh, so many folks in government are working so hard and are such good people, and they're just caught in these slow-moving, siloed, top-down bureaucratic systems at all scales. People who are county supervisors who are supposed to be running the thing are boxed in the system. And so coming at it all with a we-are-in-this-together approach, look, we need you to step up and recognize we're in an emergency and do these things, and here's what we're going to do. Yeah, um, here's what so we're going to do. We're going to really, help. Yeah, yeah. approaching it. I think in that way, everybody's doing the best they can. Um, and it feels so important to just try to approach things in a relational way. 
You're listening to a TNS conversation with Trayton Heckman and host James Stark. One of the most exciting things that I've experienced in our area is um, your early morning, 8, eight o'clock breakfast <laughs> in, in Santa Rosa. Can you say a little bit about that? I, like, <clears throat> you walk in, it's 8 o'clock, so you've got to get up early, and you go, and, and you walk in, and here are, like, hundreds of tables. How many people would come to those? About six, 600, usually a little bit over. 600 breakfast tables with all the food laid out, and there are the, the politicians from all levels of government there yeah. sitting at different tables. And just, it's just it's a celebration of community. Yeah. And you have breakfast together. You'll speak. Some of the politicians will speak. Some of the different people. Can you just say about, like, what, how did you, what was it like that when you created that first one? Like you must have been scared. Yeah, you're a risk taker. You are. <laughs> it's all been you're pretty scary. You're definitely a risk taker, right? I think you always have to. To me, I think this is a good thing when when you get really excited and then you get really scared at the same time. Yep. Like oh shit, I can't do that. Like that's the place to lean in. Yeah. Um, and so it came at the same time that which we I, I'm a big advocate for small groups of world changers and so always trying to. Help. We're still a small organization, but how can you go from a volunteer base to staff to growing to having more systemic change? And right when we were starting to do these gardens, it was sort of like a 2.0 of daily access, five years in, and we started working with agencies and getting our first government contracts, and then we launched this breakfast. We heard about this model for year-round relationship building, and then there's an ask with it, too, when it's ready. And so we had hundreds of people. We had, like, you know, we didn't realize the idea of setting an upper limit on the first one. The first one, you know, I think fire code is like 315 or something. And so we invite all these people and all of a sudden within days before it's like 320, 350, 390. We're like, ah, stop, stop, stop. <laughs> and so we had, you know, our, our mayor of Sebastopol, who is our MC, had his breakfast on his lap and his wife with his kids. You know, like people were sitting all over. At one point, we had this perfectly orchestrated system of everybody sitting at all the right tables and all of that, hundreds of people. And then there's this awareness of our, our person on our team who stayed up all night, this little glitch, and all the seat assignments were out the window. And the three of us were just standing there in the sea of people rushing in. And there's just kind of fear and dread and exhaustion in their eyes. I'm like, okay, I got to go make an announcement. So I started walking to the stage and figuring out what I was going to say along the way. I was like, must practice resilience and adaptability. Everybody find a seat and meet new friends and that kind of thing. And so there's this amazing gathering. But it was also, you know, for us it was, it was raising money, but it was this beautiful strength and humility of recognizing like, oh, this isn't even about us. This is some bigger thing that is pulling all these people together that need to be together. We've had so many leaders through time, they're like, I get more hugs at your breakfast than any other time in the year. And <laughs> right. people who lead award-winning, you know, permaculture design businesses, like, oh my God, this reminds me of how much my work matters. And so through time it grew and um, just an amazing gathering. One year, Congressman Huffman was playing guitar and they were singing the Grateful Dead's um, <laughs> Ripple on Still Water as people walk in and we're like, what is going on here? <laughs> um, yeah. so, so amazing just gathering in the community and, and create so many cross connections. And we just need that. We even, right, small audiences, big audiences, all sides, this here today, online, we just need to come together. It's so important. I think... 
having activism be a combination of fun and inspiration. Because it, when you were there at the tables, it, it was just like, and you did meet new people, and each table had a coordinator and all this. It was, it was really amazing. Can you say a little bit about, you've touched so many lives, uh, Daily Axe has. Um, is there, are there, can you just give us a couple examples of people who stand out, who came in out of the cold, like many of us, uh, for the first time, experienced the program, engaged with you, and then went, got on fire and did things? Yeah. I, that's what I'd love, to, I'd love to hear about, any examples you have of that. Yeah, a couple. One is kind of a ripple from the garden. This one woman, Judy, who became an amazing volunteer for us, she showed up at some point at the Kavanaugh Food Forest, which there are first dates that led to weddings. There are all kinds of great things that happened at these food forests. And after a year of being engaged and being involved, she was sharing at our breakfast, you know, this moment of that, you know, in she met more neighbors in two decades of living in her house in her neighborhood in, in one year than in two decades of living there once she did her permaculture garden and hired one of our volunteers who built his business off of volunteering at this to help install her garden. And she's sharing the story to the audience. And this couple, Jim and Nancy Haig, who are there, um, Dave's parents, and they know permaculture, their kids do it, they're engaged, but she heard Nancy, or she heard Judy talk about the community connection and meeting your neighbors, and that's what got her engaged. And one time, then we're at one of our, our garden parties, a donor party in our garden, and Nancy's standing there really excited to talk with me, and I'm like, hey, how's it going, Nancy? And then she starts to tell me the story how she met more neighbors in three months since they installed their permaculture garden as a part of our, our Resilience Challenge Action Campaign than in three decades of living there. And she walks out the door, and there's high school girls sitting on the community bench they installed, picking strawberries from the garden, reading a book from the free library, and cars are stopping the street, and she talks about how they kind of feel like rock stars. All these people are checking it out. <laughs> right. And this was one of 7,000 resilience actions in our community that year, and then there were other communities implementing the program as well. And then they get more involved in daily acts and become regular donors, and then that leads to them hosting a gathering, and then someone gets inspired by their garden, and they do it. And the same, I hear the, almost the same story as like more neighbors in a year than in two decades, more neighbors in three months than in three decades. I see it across the street at a garden we installed next to the cabin house, and our neighbors, like they, they're every, every person that stops by walks and talks to them, and you hear it again and again. It's such an astonishing set of stories, but when it happens again and again, of you put people in their front yard. And people want to talk and connect, and you're growing food, and you're saving water, and you're building resilience, you're sequestering carbon. It's just kind of astonishing to me how these things ripple. Yeah, making that connection. When I when I hear the stories and and I see the results, I would love for you to talk a little bit about the inner ecology of your organization. Um, and, and your inner ecology, your inner garden, because there's something um, that there's like a flow and an ease and an electric enrollment in the community. And I'm curious about what that inner ecology is of your staff. How, how, how do you create um, 
an ecology that is healthy inside an organization. It's so easy to, uh, there's some challenge, but to create ecologies out here, but to translate um, permaculture and ecological principles inside an institution is a real challenge. Can you say a little bit about that and maybe what your per, what what you bring, what your practices are personally, and then how those practices happen within the institution? Because I think it's really critical work. Because yeah. I, I think that the whole responding to the poly crisis for me is the the in, it's an inside job where you start. Yeah. Can you just? Say a little bit about that. That's a whole separate, like, half-day conversation. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we may run out of time. <laughs> um, yeah, at, at some point, you know, organically, like, people who are more present and passionate and purposeful, all these things I didn't have words for, of having these exposures and eventually getting more of what it is by having a, a Tai Chi practice and starting to meditate um, and do these things. And then came upon reverence as a really core value for me and for our organization. And I came across this definition by author Dengmin Dao of reverence as the stately determination to make something worthy of the materials and the moment. And I loved reverence as a state of awe, powerful emotion, but reverence as a compass. There's this moment, us sitting right here. There's the slightly bigger moment with folks in their living rooms or somewhere. There's the seasonal moment, the drought moment, the planetary moment, and, and centering in reverence as we work with the complexity and the unknowns just makes a lot of sense to me. And, and these ideas of, um, you know, the be the change of to model in ourselves what we value and how we want to be, to then that is how we are able to start to do shared pathfinding with others. Like we have mm -hmm. to be kind of working on ourselves to effectively in families, in homes, in organizations, in schools, churches, anywhere, certainly in the grassroots. And so it went from talking about these things and teaching about them to going, okay, well, people still are having a hard time embodying it. We have to put in our strategic priorities. We need to, like, start our meetings with meditation and check-in. We need to do two-week be-the-change challenges. We need to, and so it's just this constant process, do quarterly retreats um, around, you know, teaching personal ecology practices and self-care practices of meditation, visualization, understanding your, your nervous system and how you calm down your parasympathetic nervous system, um, whole range of things that we, we do together. And through time, they just became organizational practices where other people do them and other people lead them. And it's amazing to see, not that we don't get stressed, not that there's not difficulty, but through all the difficulty, all the growth, all the change, all the unknown, all the fearful moments, when people are practicing in themselves and we're practicing with each other, it's like if someone sits up and you're like, oh yeah, I want to sit up. If someone's breathing better, they seem more grounded, they're checking in, they start with an inquiry when someone is really triggered versus jumping into something else. Um, it's phenomenal to see the impacts it has just on how we are with each other and then how we're able to handle challenges and reset. And then we bring that into our coalitions and we, you know, get our city manager to let us do a little guided meditation in the middle of a policy setting session before you make big decisions at 3 p.m., a time that our brains are not functioning well and our emotions. It's like it's good to reset and ground. Right. Um, and so, so, yeah, it's just become 
core to who we are, and we're always trying to figure out how to help it be more. How do we get people in nature more? You know, mm-hmm. How, mm-hmm. how do we help them remember to take breaks during the day and recenter? Just so we have such important work we're doing on this planet to be present, to be reverent, to step into the power of our daily actions, to remember when we relate with anybody. Nature's operating instructions, Fritoff Capra, talk about nature sustains the web of life by creating and nurturing community. And so similar to reverence and similar to ripples, our journal and you know, core value of reclaiming our power and then nurturing community just became, these became our core values and our core operating principles. Um, and so it's constant work to figure out how to live up to them and find new practices, but centering right. on who we want to be. It's a continual practice. Yeah. It's, it's so, it's, it's the core though, like you're saying, like we can't have the great external change in my mind without. Without that internal. And yeah. can you say a little bit about, because the people who have been involved um, in, in your projects and in your programs, can you say a little bit about service? Because I'm, you know, sir, like what happens out of service? What opens up when we do service? Um, because we can have the idea and, and we can be musing about it, but it's when we go into action, when we actually serve, that the, the unfoldment happens, the miracle, the, the wonder, the new connections, all that. And can you say a little bit about that? Yeah. I think I, I associate service with uh, being connected with serving a larger purpose, something that's bigger than us. One benefit immediately is it gets us out of our ego and our small self, at least for me, of like, you're like, oh, whining or complaining or whatever it is. And then when you connect to something larger, it, yeah. um, it gives you the power of that larger thing. And then when we remember other people, when they're working from a place of service, it's easier to kind of be kinder in relation with each other if we operate the humi- differently or we come humility from. of yeah. of working because it seems like to for your organization and the people involved uh, it seems like there's a, a level of humility that comes and and people feel safe and say okay let's play let's you know there's something there when it when it isn't being led by an egoistic kind of approach and I think that's seems to be the power that you have. Yeah, and just all of us leaning in, we're doing a, um, a six-month anti-racist training with our staff, which is a whole other layer to unpack in addition to the ecological crisis that we understand of all the healthy social unrest of that we've you know, built our country on stolen land and stolen lives, and there's a lot that we have to learn about ourselves and unpack in, in this culture that we've all been conditioned in. So definitely, I think, humility and in, in leaning into that work and how, and how we've been shaped the, without our consent even. And exploring know? that as an institution. Yeah. Is yeah. that right? So um, can you say what you do? You're having Powerful, study, challenging, it, it must really bring a lot of questions forward. Yeah, yeah. Of, but of how you work. We have to lean into that in ourselves, in our families, and in our society, all over. And, and it's kind of essential. I think you're getting, you're about to get the tomato, James. <laughs> <laughs> Here comes the tomato. Whoa! Missed. <laughs> um, after all of this... 
and it's been 20 years or so since you began. And you're about to wrap a book. You're at the, almost to the publisher right now. Can you say a little bit about what that book, maybe throw out a title or if you have one. It's okay if you don't. Um, but what, what, is, what is your song? What is your message in that book? Mm. What, what are you telling the a world? A slightly more organized version of probably what I said today, but the, <laughs> the power of small. You know, right. it, title, still working it out. The working title has been Reverence and Resilience for a long time, but it, it'll probably be something around the power of small or daily actions. But just that, because so many of us are overwhelmed by what's going on and we tune out to it and we can't really afford to tune out to it because if we don't change, we're going to get, you know, composted more quickly than we want to. Um, and so power of small daily actions, power of small groups, power of small gardens, and it's laid, around, laid out on, on the frame of, of our core values and operating principles of reverence, ripples, relationships, and resilience and how these things work together in your daily life, you know, waking up and, and taking heart and being with the heartbreak that we need to face, but then leaning into the light. And then what do you do once you do that? You focus on your action. And hopefully you focus on action in right relation with community and nature. More in that habit of waking up and taking heart and mm -hmm. taking action in right relation. That's how we build resilience. Um, so, and then we're, so that, that's kind of the basis of it, and some of these stories, and then creating case studies and tools and things that people could take beyond the So book it can to, be replicated out there. Yeah, and yeah, I want to mobilize as much, unleashing the power of community as we can. Right. You mentioned earlier on about how the Bioneers rocked your world. Yeah. And I, I know, I can remember <laughs> being there with you in those, like, <laughs> 20 years ago, you know, it was really amazing. And, you you know, walk into this big hall and there's like two or 3,000 people in there. And like, wow, look at all these people. You know, I thought I was alone, you know. Um, but... Uh, last year you did a keynote address. So, like, I'm, I'm just curious about coming in with the, oh, my God, this is amazing to actually come and tell your story and, and to be able to share what you've learned. What was that like for you? What? Even though, and it was virtual. <laughs> I mean, the first was like going from, you know, sitting with, like, 20, 30 herbalists, maybe a couple hundred herbalists, then thousands of pioneers early on. That was one of my reference points, like, Going there for 20 years has fully shaped me, and Kenny and Neen and others know just this gathering of the tribe and all the inspiration, everything of just re-inoculating in that has had a huge influence on me and Daily Acts. Um, so I, I have 20 years of experience of sitting in that hall, those funky blue seats with like 3,500 people. And then last year during the pandemic, people go, wow, keynote, super excited, all the pressure. But I'm giving it to a little blue dot of a very small camera in a quiet office with nobody else. I'm not hanging out with thousands of my people at the happy hour and after party and all this stuff. And then so I finish giving it to the little blue dot. And then I go home and I'm hugging my daughter and hanging out. And then I'm sitting on a park bench and it's just this out-of-body experience of for 20 years I've been in this audience with these people and are mixing and I'm like, I'm at Bioneers, but I'm not really at Bioneers. So it was, it was, it was super sweet. And, um, but it was a little, a little surreal. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's where we are. It's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we never could have guessed this. And well, we keep on adapting in Bioneers. Like, not, can't cancel Bioneers. Like, people needed that. Like, Kenny and Need and that crew, they rallied. Like, we, you know, even online, like, we need to get together still in any form. 
as we as we lean into the poly crisis with all the climate change and social injustice, like all the things, all the stressors that we have. And, and this last year and a half has given us some kind of an indication of how radically things can change and we can't count on anything. Um, I just have some curiosity. I, I personally, I like to, because I, I get the immediate, we got to do something immediately. And I agree with that. Um, but I also like to save some time to think, well, where are we going? You know, not if we go down the tube, but where could we possibly go? And so I like, right now I'm thinking about 2121, mm-hmm. 100 years into the future. Um, what could pedal, what could your community look like? Uh, do, you, do you think about that? Do you wonder about that? Because we, we know that... Uh, Amazon has an idea of what they want that the future to look like. And so do all the yeah, other corporations yeah, yeah. are thinking about where they want that to. Like, I think it's important that we take a little bit of time to be visioning and expressing that vision and expressing that hope. Do you have some any thoughts around that? I like the expansion since we got the climate emergency passed and the new commission got the 2030 targets, which no community on the planet has done we're so focused on the next eight and a half or so years, like zero emissions by 2030 with equity and sequestration, all that. So we're deep in like, what do we need to build to do that? And you've but, cut out the gas stations. Yeah, our city became the first city in the country to ban gas stations. Um, and then really also just set, you know, really bold new all electric code too. So I think one of our commissioners who knows such things, he's a national climate leader, think we're potentially the first community that's post-peak fossil fuel infrastructure. We still got to address with a lot of existing stuff, but as far as new design. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and Petaluma was a climate laggard not that many years ago, and now is doing nation-leading policy, shows the power of small and the power of community. Um, but a hundred years out, I, 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 you know, I think just embracing, like that's the beauty of reverence. Like it's facing the hard facts, it's letting our hearts break. That's a part of this time. Because there's going to be a lot more devastation. There's going to be a lot of loss. There's no changing that. We need to be able to kind of stay awake to and work with that, but ideally not get overwhelmed by it and also focus on all the good, all that we could regenerate, all that we could save. Um, there's phenomenal solutions happening 24-7 in every nook, cranny, and corner of this planet. Like Paul Hawken talks about this, you know, where this global planetary immune response and so I think a lot of it looks like life in a permaculture garden. Our, we're, we're already visioning it now. Our, our neighborhood's food force ripping up a main street and having farms and community gardens, cars out of there. They'll be all electric, obviously, but bikes and walkable and people are connected with each other. And, you know, there, there's hard work and there's challenge and there's loss, but people are happy and they're fulfilled and they feel a mm-hmm. part of something larger. We've tapped into this. Like imagine hitting a tipping point when it isn't just a small group of world changers, a few of us, when it's our collective societal mission to regenerate and restore the earth and our communities and address the injustices um, and right the generational wrongs. I think that's... Sweet. (laughs) 
I want to live there. Yeah. <laughs> and mulberry trees everywhere. We have a Pakistani black mulberry not tree. The that ones that bred, tens of thousands not the of ones that they bred out of fruiting. No, no. But the like ones that actually yeah. have the fruit on them. Yeah. yeah. Well, just like that first at your garden, you know, like walking into these gardens and chickens clucking everywhere and catchment and food and medicine and beauty and homemade honey wine and all these sort of things. And, you know, like rather than just the occasional glimpse of like, what is this? that that's just the collective story. Right. Each one of us um, who's listening to this and um, listening to you is probably wondering, um, where do I start? And, um, and what do you need to start? And, and do I need a PhD? Do I need, you know, um, all, of, all of that. And, and I, I'm just curious what your message is to people are considering um, becoming a change agent uh, or upping their change agent role. Um, could you, and what would you say to them? And also, one thing that I'm privy to is just what an exciting life it is to be a change maker. Yeah. That, can you just say about like what that's like? Because often you think it, you might think, oh, it's the people who are out there sacrificing, when actually, you know, like one of, of um, a person that um, that is a great activist who's done some interesting stuff, and he says, you know, our our job is to have more fun than than everybody else and make sure they know it, yeah. you know, which is a little bit of an arrogant thing to say, but uh, but it it is. Um, there's just so much joy. What opens up, like, it's when you open that door at Bioneers, and oh my God, look, I didn't even know Bioneers existed, you know? Yeah. And, like, can you say something about what it's like to be in that ecology of service and change? Well, the ecology, find your James, your Anna, your Jacob, your Commonweal, find your, your tribe of people, get you crazy inspired, and you want to lean in and do good things together. And thing I didn't know early on, which, you know, all the awareness around the neurochemistry of Buddha's brain and of flow states and that finding your interests and having your interests layer in the passions and having your passions build towards a purpose and having a sense of autonomy, being able to act, a sense of competence and mastery. These are five of the most powerful neurochemical drivers in us. They, they, they make you feel like, I got to go do that thing. And so surrounding ourselves with the things that make us interested that make us passionate, that bring us purpose, that ha- feel a sense of autonomy and action, connection in nature, connection with others. Like these are such powerful neurochemical drivers. And so just doing things in our daily lives. Like every day I start up, I meditate, and I call in my mom, dad, Gandhi, Che, MLK, Kenny, Nina, Penny, <laughs> all my reference points, spiritual, environmental, otherwise. You know, I just my core practice of say mission purpose focus on strengths stir out the things i'm vexed with you call in those energies and just surround ourselves with it you know in our daily practice i have a question for you i know you have a daughter who's nine and she a hundred in 20 21 21 she'll be 109 so if we back it off a little bit um she's going to live what we're leaning into and the dreams that we're dreaming and how effectively we can manifest those dreams. 
Um, I know a lot of parents, well, whether they even choose to have children or not, that's, that's one big turning point. But when you have children, what, what do you say, what, how do you describe the world that she is entering into? What do you, how, how do you prepare her for what's ahead? Yeah, that's a, that's a big one. <clears throat> I, was, I was pretty tired a few years ago and ready to pull back and chill and tend family and spend time with her in this really important age. At the same time, that's when the climate emergency was really hitting hard. It's like, I want to take more time, but I need to lean in to help keep the wheels on the bus. Um, so that's what catalyzed our, our deeper policy push for me and moving in that space. Um, and just like trying to, you know, have her grow up in a permaculture garden surrounded by amazing people. All the stuff I said two seconds ago of just trying to fuel her into, you know, being an incredible earth warrior and recognize that she's got a critical purpose to play in this time and finding what that is for her. And taking her, I've been taking her backpacking since she was four um, with her little ladybug backpack running down the trails, falling in the <laughs> dust and looking for fairies. I'm okay, I'm okay. Um, yeah. But getting her in nature and getting her connected and getting her to listen to the, you know, the songs from the hawks and the, just feeling a part of this living, breathing world that can help hold our hurt and help provide guidance and connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just trying to infuse her with as much of those skills and tools as I can. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Trayton Heckman and host James Stark. Yeah, I feel how what came up for you uh, from the heart level when you thought about your daughter. And I know for many of us, thinking of the children, um, they're arriving, uh, is one of the things that really gets us out in the morning. Yeah. And, and um, I know it's, it's touching for me to think about that, um, but I am so glad you're out there doing what you're doing and so glad that you came today and and I would love to um, just open it up if anybody has any questions or tomatoes <laughs> yeah um, if there's any eggs I like mine sunny side up right? <laughs> let's do let's do one question from the in-person audience and then we'll do one from the chat How about that I'm Claire Peasley. I live in Point Reyes Station, and I'm currently really active with West Marin Climate Action. So I'm so grateful for this opportunity to get this big infusion of light and direction and energy. One of our big challenges in Greater West Marin, which has a lot of very powerful um, self-created organizations, because we're our own entity with you know, the county to help, but we we create what we want, and mm-hmm. that's one of the cool things about living here. We're networking together as organizations now to address the challenges that we all have with regard to equity. Mm-hmm. Now that word was mentioned several times as you went along, but I was wondering, both in your organization and in your town, what has been one of the biggest challenges for inclusivity and empowering other people that don't look like you and me? And what have been among the most powerful avenues for bridging and 
and engaging. And um, for me, it's taking a back seat and um, listening, but literally bringing more people of diverse origin into power, action, leadership. Yeah, that's a super that's a, important question. Yep. Um, I, I'll start with, you know, in the that climate emergency, when we're first mobilizing around, we need to get our city to declare a climate emergency and to create a new uh, cabinet or a climate commission, we were very conscious not to just mobilize around the climate emergency, but to frame it around prioritizing equitable climate action. And not that we had all the answers or all the skills, but we knew it was critical. And in doing that, and then in the city working with us, once they declared a climate emergency, we helped create the criteria for the climate cabinet and got them to do the first ever public process. And we hosted a, a forum on equity and climate action. And all these things led to a record number of climate commission candidates. But also we started out two of the first, based on criteria, but an interest, um, two of the, our, our, our current and original climate commissioners are women of color, um, one's a, a black First Nations climate justice organizer, and they both attended this event that we hosted, our, our, our coalition, and neither one had any intention on running for office. And, and seeing the need and seeing the inspiration and hearing the community call for this is what brought them into the conversation. And we certainly cannot put all this, like as a, a white male, as white folks, we have to do our work and be voices too. Like we can't expect the leaders of color to be the voices for the conversation. But bringing that as a frame up front, and then when we created a, a people-powered climate emergency framework with the city during the pandemic, the city was buried in addressing the pandemic, and so the commission and a bunch of volunteers organized, and we created a 50-page climate emergency framework that's guiding our city. And every ounce of that had to like, what does equity mean? What does that look like throughout that? And so it started a conversation in the city, and there was a number of other factors. It just brought it into the center, and that brings up discomfort and unknowns, and how do you do deep and different engagement while immediately addressing all the issues of what the science says about mitigation and changing our buildings and that. And so there's these tensions um, in that. And we, uh, it's on our website, but DailyX piloted with um, an equity consultant and partner, an equitable climate action coalition that has 100% BIPOC community members. And we funded it. We, we paid them to be able to show up and learn about the framework and attend meetings. And then they made policy recommendations. And so our government structures are not set up for good and deep engagement at any level, let alone on the equity side. And so in, in learning in that, there's just a lot of listening and relationship prepare that has to happen. Um, and so, so just by starting with that intent and then addressing the difficult things as we go and getting more diverse folks in the conversation, and doing our learning and study and having you know, cultural humility and reading books like White Fragility and How to Be an Anti-Racist and kind of doing our work so we could try and be more, um, more literate in this space and, and, and build relationships. You know? it, it involves a lot of undoing of, of thinking that I, I and we've had for a long time. Um, but I feel hopeful for that work being done, even though it's challenging work when people lean in um, a lot of good things are happening with it. Did that help answer a bit? Okay. Great question. Yeah, really Great good. question. Okay, we have one from the chat. This is from 
Joanne Moylan Ob, and she's just asking, can you briefly describe the difference between permaculture gardening and organic gardening? I think James Whoa. is probably the better Jedi. Oh, I'd love to hear what you. Yeah. I I think well, permaculture is so many definitions. It's a it's this holistic design science that's rooted in the ethics of earth care, fair share, and people care. Um, and then there's these universal strategies. Produce no waste as a strategy. It looks different in West Marin versus Sub-Saharan Africa, but it's this principle, this operating principle. And so permaculture, and that applies to permaculture, applies to how you run organizations or build businesses, or you know, it, it has a lot more comprehensive elements to it than just as a gardening technique, though gardening is the thing most of us know from it. Right. Um, so I'll, that, but I'd love to hear you, James. Yeah, and it's and it's about um, how can we uh, adopt um, a, a set of principles and and um, and be able to take on how we move on the planet, how we heat our homes, how we, like all of it, like how do we live in harmony with the natural world? So. Um, and what are the ecological principles? How does uh, how do living systems work? And permaculture's been um, when Bill Molson and and uh, began the journey, and David Holmgren when they began uh, to put it out there, they were both scientists who came out of the study of natural systems, and then looked at the earth and looked at human beings and are we operating as a natural system? No, we're, we're countered everything. Yeah. So the whole element about how, if we acted like nature, what, uh, how would we get through a day? Daily acts. So it comes down to what would our daily acts be? And so, and gardening, uh, gardening in that bigger context, I think, is, is, um, is what would the difference be in that? It is a great entry point into like nature's operating instructions, though. Yeah, because we encounter okay. There's how it works. That gopher yeah. is hungry, and guys, it just garden. ate my carrot. Yeah, <laughs> guys, garden's a great book to introduce the principles and from the gardening angle. Can you say a little bit about um, with the gardens that you've um, installed and through your collaborations with others? Um, do they continue, like, do, do people stay engaged? There's the initial impulse, and then, um, and then you talked about how they become a, um, a focal point in the neighborhood, and I, I know that's the case. <laughs> there, there was a story about somebody took a permaculture course with us, and he was a, a lawyer, and, and um, his partner uh, was in the design field, and they decided in a suburban home down in Marin, <clears throat> they were going to do this. And, and um, the, for the first year and a half, they started loading big loads of wood chips on the front yard. And, and then they collect this and collect that. And it was all like the staging, getting ready. Well, they tried to figure out what the design, and they worked with some designers. And uh, they would get hate mail. Oh. On the windshield of their car. <laughs> what are you guys wrong in the community? What are all these piles? All this grumbling, right? For years, you know. Wow. And and then um, then when they started to implement it, and then all of a sudden 
people started coming and saying, well, I'm so, you know, we thought that this was going to be a real disaster. Our, our property values were all going to go down. And, 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 and it's so amazing. Can we, can we come in and have a look? And because and, their front yard was, all, you know, fruit trees and all yeah. this kind of stuff. And, and yeah, it, it's, it's so intoxicating. It is that. And uh, did you ever go to um, uh, Village Homes? I haven't. I've seen it in pictures bazillions of times and a couple little videos now. It looks amazing. I'd love to go there, though. And just to, to say that Village Homes is a, a subdivision that was developed, I don't know, 30-some? Probably 40. 40, 40 yeah. years ago. And they broke, I forget, almost 100 violations of code. And they decided rather than running the water off the property, they would keep it all. There was, so there was no storm sewers. And they had rooftop gardens and everything was passive solar. And it was all edible landscape and stuff. And after all this time, a home there compared to the subdivision across the road is 30% more. Yeah, sure. So the question is... Um, how do we how do we make the possibility uh, available to people to make these choices? And and I love the work that you're doing because yeah. that is, you know, take out the and it's happening right now. Take out the lawn, put some strawberries in. Change <laughs> policy is an important part of that. You know, yeah. getting more folks, not being afraid of policy. Like I, I didn't. I still probably don't have a good definition of policy. But we're like, if the right policies aren't getting written, we're just going to start writing policy. And so more of us doing that, more community groups showing up and, you know, getting this stuff built into the systems is an important part of it. Yeah. So uh, where, can you say a little bit about wh where do you live? You live in Santa Rosa? Petaluma. Petaluma. Sonoma County, yeah. Yep. And um, what's it like, because uh, you must spend so much time doing your work. Do you, get, do you get at all to work in your garden? Yeah, decently. Luckily, fruit trees, you know, permaculture, we, it takes a lot of work, but also is pretty self-maintaining. Less vegetables this year and with the drought, but we still got a little bit of rain from our different catchment systems and tons of fruit trees and berry bushes, and you never get enough time in the garden, but I, I sit in it every day and do my work. That's why I work from the garden a lot. Which is helpful. I love this morning as we walked around in Commonwealth Garden and we went from fruit tree to fruit tree. Oh, look at yeah. that. Oh, that one. Here's a, that one is so pink. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God, it's almost electric. And a lot then, of good apples there. Yeah, and some <laughs> and of the pears. little tiny ones and big pears oh and stuff God. like that. Uh, it doesn't get any better than that. Like walking into Whole Foods is wonderful, <laughs> sort of. And, but... To walk into an orchard or a garden and oh, pick yeah. the, you know, and, and watch children and have, I, I'm just imagining with your daughter being able to forage. And, and that just leaves a lasting impression. That sets, it's kind of oh, like yeah. a mantra for the rest of our lives. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I know for, for me, it did growing up on a farm. You know, like you, you're referencing that. And that's why I was interested in your roots. Did you grow up in a city ecology or like? More urban, yeah, urbanish, yeah. you know, urban suburban, so to speak. Not with fruit trees and berry bushes and all that. Like my daughter, she just thought oh, everything's edible. It's like, no, no, you can't eat everything everywhere else. <laughs> Holding herself up to blueberry bushes in her diapers and then like reaching over for some gooseberries and <laughs> just yeah. foraging her way around. Yeah. Yeah. More kids growing up like that. 
for sure. We have one more question here from the chat. Are you up for it? Yeah, sure. Okay. So this is from Jim Quay, and he says, uh, very inspiring as an individual and an organization. How do you respond to the future envisioned in Kim Stanley Robinson's The Ministry for the Future? Are you familiar? It's sitting on my bookshelf. It's this giant book that I heard is amazing. I'm like, I'm going to get to that soon. I I haven't quite, but I, I really... I really want to read it. I've heard such good things about it. So unfortunately, since... But this will inspire me to bump it up on the, uh, on the read list for sure. I know there's at least one person in the audience here who's reading that. Oh, I nice. don't know whether, you know, uh, they want to say anything about it, but... Uh, <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> uh, um, because um, I'm waiting for... Uh, somebody to finish reading it so that I can read it. <laughs> okay, so so my name is Anna O'Malley, and I am reading that book. And um, I, I had a question that um, I think also kind of looks at, um, perhaps speaks to some of the content of that book. But you mentioned Fritjof Capra, and I'm curious if you have um, in your strategic planning do you think about um, systems theories and like where where you can what the leverage points are in a system and um, how many of those you're you're working at and and how that uh, kind of plays into the change making that you're doing yeah it's it's good to have a nice light question (laughs) we have so many interconnecting intersecting frameworks that we use and even like our equity work has a whole set of frameworks to you know decolonize our minds but I, there's other ones we use, but the um, Center for Eco Literacy that Fritoff Capra helped create, they, some of their core um, principles or strategies for driving systems change are, wor- you know, first, create and nurture community. Networks is the most common pattern in nature, and so creating networks, and that's what we do organically in collaborations through coalitions and that. Um, another one is work at a range of scales from, you know, self to home, to neighborhood, to city, to county. And we do this in our organization constantly, consciously working at like nine different scales. But we all could do this in our schools, our churches, our family. Like we're all embedded in networks. And so, you know, thinking about and cultivating networks and fostering networks and relationships, working at a range of scales, um, promoting self-organizing. A lot of the examples I shared, all the things I've shared embody all these systems change principles. Uh, Promoting self-organizing is a key systems change principle. And then with that, recognizing we can facilitate, but we can't control change. We plant a lot of seeds, and you dance with who and what shows up, and you try and guide things, but it's going to go where it's going to go. Um, you know, being prepared to be surprised, but also be prepared to be in it for the long haul. So those are uh, not all of them, but a set of the systems change strategies from that system that kind of constantly thinking about. There's a really great book called Forces for Good from an organizational perspective, and they mapped out these six core principles that it doesn't matter whether you're a right-wing think tank or a really progressive organization or a super artsy organization, that they all kind of did the same things regardless of scale to drive systems change. It's this idea of an entity being an ecosystem catalyst, that you get businesses and schools and churches and lots of players focused towards a collective good. Um, And so that's a really good one. They call out networks. They call it inspiring advocates or evangelists, people who are passionate about your thing, which comes from your deeper why. That's why people do things, a deeper why. 
um, working with government, working with business, being responsive and adaptive. So those are a couple of the sort of systems change frameworks that we use, and then we're constantly adding in other ones and looking how they all mix. You know, it's heady, complicated stuff, but it's helpful to have the pattern recognition and then line up with these things that create change. Or, or as I, I don't know where you got it, but you know, the idea of feed two birds with one scone is another one, like <laughs> multifunction in permaculture, right? <laughs> how can this thing do many positive things and solve many problems? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and thank Jim for ask, asking that yeah, question that because book so the book and and there is Michael Lerner uh, just recently did an interview which you can will be uh, recorded. It's recorded and available uh, with the author. Oh, cool! Which right. is I'm really amazing, that. and it, it's kind of um, I, I'm shooting up because I haven't <laughs> haven't um, I'm shooting out there because I haven't read it. But my understanding is it's kind of like a science fiction, only it's uh, about a, a couple of years from now <laughs> and what, how things are unfolding. And uh, it's a great captivating read about some of the ways this could unfold. And, um, and I think it's, it's great to have that picture so that um, we can prepare ourselves. Kira, do you want to come in? and? Did you want to read your poem, James? Okay. It would be nice to to end with with that in a way. Poetry helps. You had mentioned about um, how do we source and this journey, and it, and it isn't like we're going to go um, back to living how we did uh, fifty thousand years ago or whatever. But, and you mentioned, uh, Kira mentioned that the series about uh, what kind of an ancestor you're going to mm. be. Yeah. And the presence, I think that the presence of ancestors is, is something that the opening of that up. Um, we tend, in our, in our culture here, have um, the presence, uh, having our ancestors, the ancestor field not being present in our work, and I think it's really important that we do, and this touches on, a little bit on that, because it's what we know inside and what we're connected to. So, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this. Winged Heart Airlines. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for traveling on Winged Heart Airlines. Please take your seats and assume an upright position. Whatever you do, do not assume the posture of a wilted flower. We are all counting on you. The co-captains on this transport are many. They all hope you enjoy your trip. Hopefully, your dreams were revealing and meals nourishing. May the heart inside your feet pulse with the inner knowing of what path you need to take now. I think that message, and I, I just want to um, read that one again. May the heart inside your feet pulse with the inner knowing of what path you need to take now. Their only request is that you keep going. Keep going, friends. Keep going. I know at times it seems that you're lost, that we all are completely lost in this dark age, but it isn't the case. We are all part of a new world being visualized and rewoven. What are being called by the ancient futures? 
we are being called by the ancient futures. We are remembering the way, and that takes a lot of time, befriending, solitude, and silence, and letting our guard down with others. Some part of us, a very ancient part of us, knows. We don't need any reminders. We don't need any more practices. We don't need any more prophets or martyrs. We don't need yet another blessing. We don't need to travel halfway around the world to locate the seeds of what will grow in the garden again. We don't need to collect yet another teacher as a notch on our spiritual bedpost. We have what we need. This ancient part of us is a well-developed consciousness dancing inside our consciousness. Give it whatever name you want. This deep root is the root teacher of all root teachers of all students and seekers. Listen. Even when lost, those feet know the way. Just breathe and keep going. And one day, we will sit in a circle on the other shore, and we will smile and say, Yes, I remember this place. Yes, I remember you. Yes, I remember me. Yes, I remember what we were all sent here to do. Yes, keep going. Frank Owen. Such a nice one. So we'll close with that. Thank you both so much, and thank you all for coming, and thank you all for attending and coming to the webinar. And to all of you that are out there watching later or listening, we hope you join us for another event. If you want to find the recordings for this event and watch it again for the conversation, they're on tns.commonweal.org. They're also on Spotify. YouTube, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. So, Trayton Heckman and James Stark, thank you for joining us at the New School at Common Wheel. Thank you. Thank you, Trayton. Thank you, James. <laughs> You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Trayton Heckman and host James Stark. Thank you for listening to TNS, the New School at Common Wheel. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Jeremy Cohen. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.